Hello and welcome to Governance Uncovered, a podcast brought to you by the Governance and Local Development Institute at the University of Gothenburg. This podcast is supported by the Swedish Research Council. In this episode, we'll delve into topics of global value chains, multiculturalism, and the social implications of civil service exams. Guesting us is Oliver Harmon and Ricardo Crescenzi, who will discuss the significance of considering global value chains at the regional and subnational level. International negotiations are again felt on the ground and can have very important implications for different localities, depending on their participation into global value chains and their positions in global value chains. Next, we're joined by Rebecca Grace Tan, who will shed light on Singapore's approach to multiculturalism and national identity. So Singapore national identity is primarily driven around a couple of ideas. First is this idea of uh, multiculturalism, is, or the multicultural character of Singapore is a big part of framing what it is to be living in Singapore, the Singapore lived experience, but also what it means to be Singaporeans. Lastly, we have Nick Kuypers, who will discuss the impact of civil service exams on representation in municipalities and individuals' attitudes. And one of the things that I hypothesized in this other paper in Indonesia is that against that backdrop, the experience of failing a civil service exam might motivate attitudinal changes on, on say, political resentment. Stay tuned as we explore these topics and gain valuable insights into regional development, multiculturalism, and unintended consequences of high-stakes exams. First up in today's episode, we have Oliver Harmon and Ricardo Crucenzi, who will be talking about their book, Harnessing Global Value Chains for Regional Development. How to Upgrade Through Regional Policy, FDI, and Trade. In their book, they emphasize the importance of considering global value change at the regional or subnational level. They argue that regional development strategies should focus on identifying opportunities within the value chain and leveraging existing competences to contribute and upgrade gradually. Oliver is a CITES economist for the International Growth Center's CITES at Work initiative based at Blavantic School of Government, University of Oxford. And Ricardo is a professor of economic geography at the London School of Economics and Political Science. So my name is Ricardo Crescenzi. And I'm Oliver Harmon. Thank you, Oliver and Ricardo. It's great to have you with us today and to talk about your book that's really thinking about global value chains and about the importance of thinking about them at the regional or subnational level. So I very much enjoyed looking at your work and I'm excited about adding essentially kind of a more economic-oriented component to the discussions that we often have here. So let me just start, Oliver, by asking you to explain to those of us who are not so immersed in economics what global value chains are and why they're important. Thank you. So global value chains, I think the best way of perhaps explaining a global value chain is with an example. And the example that we often like to use and is somewhat the poster child of global value chains is the bicycle. So most people see the bicycle as sort of one final good and indeed it, it once was but in fact the bicycle is sort of made up of many intermediate goods produced in many varied places around the world you know you have saddles made in Italy you have the frame made in Vietnam often the brakes in Japan and all these goods come together all these intermediate goods come together to produce one one final good and but that's only kind of one aspect of the global value chain because 
beyond the actual production, we also have all these other related tasks and services that go into it. The research and development of the steel, for example, the design of the bicycle, the logis logistics and distribution of moving these parts all around the world. And then after the production, the kind of marketing as well. So that's the way that we, we see the global value chain it is this full range of activities that both firms and workers perform to bring a product from its conception to its uh, end use and beyond. Great, thank you. And Ricardo, maybe you can help me to understand a little bit the way that Oliver just described this, thinking about what comes from Italy, what comes from China and different parts at kind of a country level. But you're also making an argument that we should think about this in terms of regional or subnational development as well. Can you help me to understand how we might move something that we think about at a country level down to subnational levels and also how states and others might actually act to try to promote regional development through global value chains? Yeah, I think it's very important to keep in mind that the tasks, the activities that are involved at the different stages in the production of the final product, so all these intermediate stages in the production of the bike that Oliver mentioned, touch the ground in specific localities. So the phenomena, the, the places where these processes happen, the type of skills, the type of competencies, the technological infrastructure and capabilities that are leveraged to participate in global value chains are very specific of particular localities within countries. So when we look at participation in global value chains, we see that these chains form connections across subnational localities rather than countries as a whole. So that's why we think uh, when we reflect about global value chains, we really need to move away from the traditional country level, national level, macro understanding of the value chain phenomena and bring it to the places, to the localities where the global value chains touch the ground and interact with real people, real infrastructure, uh, real skills, et cetera, et cetera. So we feel that the regional perspective is somewhat missing in the standard narrative about global value chains, but it is fundamentally important to understand the phenomena. And a key tenet, a key point of our book is that thinking about intermediate goods and thinking about global value chains can offer new opportunities for regional development. Maybe a country as a whole can think about producing the entire bike, but it is a lot more difficult, in particular for less developed regions within countries, to, th to think about, okay, all of a sudden I, I, I move into the production of bikes or like electric bikes because it's a, an important contribution to the green transition. What we argue is that global value chains give regions the opportunity to start from a much more defined, a smaller step. So look at the chain and see, okay, how can I contribute to the production of, say, electric bikes by producing a component in which I already have a set of competencies and a sort of competitive advantage already there in my own locality that can be leveraged for me to start uh, being part of the chain and then upgrade from there, progressively moving towards the sections of the chain that attract more value. But we feel that the shifting the focus of regional development strategies, of economic development strategies for localities away from final goods, to consider also the, the fundamental role of intermediate uh, goods and value chains can open a new set of developmental opportunities for regions and cities and localities across the globe. 
And then do you think of this as something that is strategy and policymaking and, and implementation at the local level or regional level? Or do you think of this as sort of centrally directed? Or how do we think about where this thinking that you're talking about should be taking place? And to what extent does it need to be coordinated at the central level? The challenge of what we call GVC-oriented policies is certainly a challenge that also involves coordination, coordination across the different levels. So we know that global value chains touch the ground in particular localities. And we argue that global value chains can be leveraged as important tools for economic development in localities across the globe. However, localities, subnational regions cannot act in isolation. The role of the central government as well as supranational organizations. In the case of the EU, the coordination and the strategic role of the European Commission, of the European Union, is also important. So uh, to the point that the European Commission is defining new strategies for the support of European value chains. So it, it is definitely like a multi-layer challenge that involves the coordination of a variety of different actors and a variety of different levels of governance to bring the skills, to bring the, the resources that are needed for places to be able to link up and upgrade uh, in, in global value chains. So definitely, when thinking about GVC-oriented policies, the problem of coordination and governance takes center stage. And it is one that needs a careful design and, and, and significant also capacity building actions to make sure that different governance levels are up to the task when interacting and dealing with global value chains that often involve like very big corporate players. And, and we cannot leave localities, we cannot leave local governments alone in dealing with these big players. So they need capacity and they need support. But that's very important not to see this as exclusively something that is in the real, in the policy action range of uh, national governments. It's something that crucially needs to involve subnational units of governance, regions, but also cities very often. And Oliver, I want to think about how far this strategy travels. It's easy for me to see it taking place in the EU or in OECD countries where we have relatively well-developed central and local governments and we have infrastructure, human and, and physical capital that might make this very appropriate. My question is, to what extent can we take this to places where both economic and political development might be less advanced, right? So what happens when we have either weaker central and regional or, or local governments? And to what extent should we think of this as being a strategy that's very useful for you know, OECD or other parts of the West, but not necessarily so much for the global South? And indeed, the evidence points to that this actually is almost you know, more of a solution or at least an underutilized solution for lower income and lower developed countries. Often what is seen is we see these kind of these difficulties, you know, these information asymmetries, these sort of this lack of engagement with the global value from the global value chain and the and the actors as, as part of that with the local level. And what we just what we outline in the book is some kind of public policy units that act as a sort of a go between the global value chain and the region or the locality in order to reduce this information distance and actually link up what the region can offer with what the kind of those actors in the global value chain want. And I think a key part of this in order to leverage it is what we describe as and others describe as global value chain mapping, you know, understanding what are those local characteristics and the local capabilities and also the firms that are part 
part of a region and, and how they can connect or build up to um, the value chain. I think that's important. And I think also this narrative of harnessing global value chains and the, the task-based approach that we outlined. So looking beyond sectors by sectors and looking at actually activities is, is crucial for countries in the global south and regions in the global south because it, it allows a slightly different development pathway to the classic one of structural transformation that we often see. You know, it's often argued that lower income countries go from agriculture to manufacturing to services. But what this approach allows you to do is to look at perhaps agriculture, perhaps or primary sectors such as forestry and think, OK, what are the higher value added tasks within forestry that we can engage with rather than moving from forestry related tasks to services, for example? And indeed, you know, you asked uh, the extent to which it can be taken to some of these uh, global south regions or much of actually the learning we took was from these these regions. We have a number of examples in uh, in Sri Lanka, for example, and in the Philippines, where these local institutional actors have been able to link up with multinationals and have been able to integrate, for example, smaller secondary cities into these international production networks, attracting foreign direct investment and both connecting what they have within their city with what is needed from these um, global trade flows. And I just wanted to touch upon that as well, because it's something I um, I missed out at the beginning with regards to their importance. You know, this this isn't some sort of new fad or the next new exciting shiny development argument. You know, global value chains account for fifty percent of total trade today. So these this is something that is not some new niche. This is something that all regions are are exposed to, and it's sort of whether you can engage with them beneficially is the kind of crucial question here. And those that have been engaging with them efficiently have seen increases in productivity, development and trade at a much faster rate than those that have not. And that's both at the the higher income and the lower income levels. And what allows that? In other words, your policy recommendations or the things that you think need to be done differently in some places and, and than others in order to be able to harness these kind of potential benefits. So what do you think is missing and what are sort of prime examples of places that get it right? I think this... Yeah, as I as I indicated earlier, some some aspect of global value chain mapping to understand where the region is on the chain and where it can kind of upgrade throughout the chain is quite important. We highlight global value chain orientated public policy, both looking at place based things that can happen that the locality can can engage with itself, but also place neutral. So as Ricardo spoke about the the need for these different le- different levels of government to to engage in this, the you know the place neutral things is not necessarily are not necessarily the ones that you're in charge of as a as a region or a locality. These are the ones that occur at a national level, but ultimately have spatially felt consequences, but they're not always adhered to or thought through. So I think when we're thinking about public policy having this yeah this kind of global value chain orientated lens is is an, is an important one this can be both with more classic policies in hard infrastructure and and soft infrastructure and thinking about standards and thinking about human capital and skills policy all those things are often not viewed with a global value chains lens so i think one of our arguments is to even just view those with a global value chains lens and you can see this benefit but also there's more there's policies that engage with the chain a little bit more. And we speak to things like investment promotion agencies and uh, local linkage units and how to kind of have aftercare with multinationals as as also these policies that more actively um, yeah, engage with the chain and I think are important and often underutilized. If I can add, um, Sarah, I, I think 
all the, the points that Oliver discussed, you know, the idea of doing things differently in terms of designing development strategies for localities. So putting like the GVC lens on and I'm trying to understand when designing uh, a particular infrastructural project, how and to what extent this project has to do not only with internal connectivity or with connectivity in terms of, okay, who am I exporting to, but also understanding okay, wh what is my position in global value chains and how also designing this particular port or this airport differently can facilitate my upgrading given like the sectors in which I already developed uh, uh, strength, how and to what extent I can facilitate the attraction of higher value-added activities in the local economy. So that's about doing things differently, but it's also about doing new things. Uh, doing new things means uh, having a new role for localities when, for example, negotiating international trade deals with the understanding that the consequences of trade deals, the consequences of uh, international negotiations are again felt on the ground and can have very important implications for different localities, depending on their participation into global value chains and their positions in global value chains. So it's about like having a new role for localities when we understand that they play a key role in the this global connectivity of which global value chains are the backbone, but also doing new things in terms of designing instruments, designing organizations that can facilitate what we call the vertical, the direct engagement with specific, specific segment of the value chain. And that's where the idea of investment promotion agencies becomes central. Investment promotion agencies that do not necessarily need to be like separate dedicated organizations can also be dedicated unit within existing uh, regional governments. But what is distinctive and what we find to work with our empirical research at the subnational level is having like giving these organizations this unit a very clear mandate in terms of which sections on the value chains to engage and giving them a specific role in building the local ecosystem so what the, the, we have produced new evidence uh, counterfactual like policy evidence to show that that investment promotion agencies at the subnational level can play a very important role that is additional to the role of national investment promotion agencies that have, are already widely studied in the literature and the, what role do they play by being very close to the investor by being very close to the lead firm, by being very close to where things happen on the ground, they can really act as plumbers of the local ecosystem, address specific bottlenecks that sometimes block the expansion of investment, the reliance on uh, new domestic local suppliers, for example. So they really can play, and, and we have shown that they can effectively play a role of creating the connections that are needed for the value chain to generate persistent, long-lasting impacts on, on the host economy. So this is really like calls for national, supranational and local level to rethink about what is needed to bring about economic development on the ground. And we feel uh, this gives a more like specific, uh, actionable message vis-a-vis -vis what has been uh, so far highlighted in the literature in giving general advice in terms of improving the quality of government generally or the quality of institutions in the regions. This is like more easily said than done. Regions, in particular in emerging economies, I mean, if they knew how to do that, they would have done this already in the past. And also, how, how can we like achieve this in practice? We feel 
that by designing very specific organizations with a very clear mandate, mandated to engage with the global level, we can trigger a process of change that through demonstration uh, effects and through interaction with the local ecosystem can then be a very powerful starting point to create demand for institutional change, to create demand at the local level for better well-functioning institutions. So we feel like the book also offers not the solution, but a possible new entry point, a possible trigger to generate much wider impacts on the local ecosystem at the subnational level, reinforcing uh, and, and giving like a, a practical uh, meaning and, and, and practical indications in a wider literature with which we, of course, agree that places like institutions at the very center of uh, local uh, development uh, policies. Thank you. I think that's excellent. And it's a it's a powerful statement about how to address this tension that we often have, right, about needing to promote good governance and better local government and, and all of the things and the kind of institutional qualities that we know are important. And at the same time, recognizing that those are both important for economic growth, but also to some extent dependent upon it, right? So this is a great, I think, a really, really great intervention. I want to again thank both of you for joining us. If you have any last words, I'm happy to happy to hear them. But again, I think this is a really, really great contribution to how we think about local governance more generally, but also particularly economic development. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Much appreciated. Our next guest is Rebecca Grace Tan, who is a lecturer at National University of Singapore. Rebecca's research interests lie in issues surrounding Singapore politics, migration, citizenship, multiculturalism, and nationalism. She has done work on how the Singaporean state negotiate the two-faced challenge of embracing cultural pluralism in its population, while also forming a common national identity. Ellen and Rebecca met to discuss this work of hers and will, among other things, talk about how the Singaporean state has approached this two-faced challenge of citizenship by developing a framework of multiculturalism. So I'm Rebecca, Rebecca Tan from the National University of Singapore and I teach at the Political Science Department. Fantastic. Thank you, Rebecca, and thank you for joining us today. I'm excited about your work because, first, because I'm in Singapore, and it's, it's a great introduction to, to coming here, but also because I think the questions and issues that you're raising with regards to Singaporean citizenship and national identity, and then how the state and volunteers try to promote that is extremely interesting and really, really fascinating ways to think about social norms and a lot of other issues that we, we tend to focus on at GLD. So I want to start by just asking you to describe a little bit what Singaporean national identity is. Like, what is the state and other Singaporeans trying to promote when they think about you know, who we are? So Singapore national identity is primarily driven around a couple of ideas. First is this idea of uh, multiculturalism, this, or the multicultural character of Singapore is a big part of framing what it is to be living in Singapore, the Singapore lived experience, but also what it means to be Singaporean. So a lot of my focus is on the idea of being part of the Singaporean multicultural society. So the first is there's a lot of acceptance that Singapore ought to be diverse and it's a good thing. So where there might be other societies that say, you know, you have to practice a certain sort of cultural, you need to be from a certain culture. It's because there's a language in Singapore, there's the expectation that it's okay if you are ethnically diverse. There are, of course, some expectations that you still conform to society's 
practices. So for example, speaking English is seen as something that unifies uh, the multicultural character. So where there might be lots of languages spoken, a lot of religions practiced, you are expected to still speak English so that everybody can understand each other as a sort of medium of communication. So there's, there's that sort of understanding Singapore's diversity. So on top of just being, it's okay to be diverse, there's also the expectation that uh, you need to accept that diversity too. So there's in some ways an expectation that there's a norm of accepting that diversity, of embracing it. So this could be seen as sort of consuming alternative cultures uh, in terms of the food that you eat, having knowledge of other cultural practices. So there's a lot of this, for example, public education, but also even in the naturalization process, there are ways in which new citizens are exposed to alternative cultures. So for example, their excursions, uh, part of the citizenship process is sort of an educational element uh, where new citizens and applicants for the citizen, for Singaporean citizenship are brought to various places of interest. This might be national sites, but it also might be cultural sites. So there'd be, for example, you might visit a temple or you might volunteer, for example, in your local neighborhood during Ramadan, which is the period of Muslim fasting. And you might volunteer, for example, to give out food for the needy people in your neighborhood when they've just broken their fast. Uh, and that's seen as a way of sort of multicultural education to kind of not just merely exposure, but in sort of indicating or performing that you accept the multicultural nature of Singapore. And if you aren't seen as as being so accepting of adopting that sort of norm of accepting alternative cultures, then you're often seen as, as not, not a good Singaporean. So there's that sort of norm or ethos of multiculturalism. But there are also other ideas as well of good neighbourliness, civic mindedness and sort of this language, uh, that even if you come from a different backgrounds, you're still expected to be a good neighbour. So ideas, for example, of being considerate to other people, going to change your behaviours in terms of uh, being a little bit more uh, living in public housing, for example, is a big part of Singaporean identity. So getting used to what it is to live in very close quarters with people, you know, to be responsible, to be welcoming to other people is a lot of this idea. So there's a lot of, um, as I think with a lot of, of citizenship practices, there's both sort of instruction, but there's also a lot of disciplining functions of saying, you know, this is what's encouraged. And if you don't adhere to those expectations of what it is to be, the good Singaporean or the good citizen, then you will face some sort of stigma or certainly some sort of social censure if you don't adhere by whatever our sets of norms are, which I think has a lot to do with sort of multiculturalism, multiracialism and accepting of those ideas. But yes. Yeah, I just want to chime in here because one of the things that, that really struck me, right, when I was reading your work, you talk about the CMIO, right, the Chinese, Malay, Indian, other kind of identities that Singapore is built around. And that you say that the language of instruction in schools is English and the sort of language of public discourse is English, but that different groups, essentially different ethnic groups, will also learn their kind of mother tongue, mm -hmm. right? So Chinese are learning Mandarin, Indians are learning Hindu or Urdu at times. And so it's an interesting notion of trying to celebrate, not trying to make everybody the same, kind of the melting pot idea of the states, but really trying to kind of celebrate that, that multiculturalism. And the other thing that jumped out, and I think makes your point about the tolerance, is you talk about the curry incident, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And maybe you can say a little bit more about that, because I think it really brings to light this idea about the expectations around tolerance. So in 2011, uh, there was what's been labeled in sort of uh, public discourse is the curry incident where a mainland Chinese family of migrants who'd moved into a public housing neighborhood 
I had complained to their member of parliament about a neighboring Indian family and the fact that they had cooked curry. And basically it was a, it was a, it was a sort of standard neighborly dispute that you might have, you know, in any, any neighborhood, right? About whether you put your shoes in, next to somebody in somebody's house, next to somebody's house, or, you know, your children making too much noise. In most societies, you just consider that to be a sort of standard neighborly dispute where you might ask someone to sort of mediate. But this sort of came to the fore public's attention because of the fact that it was seen as very not accepting an alternative culture. It caused this huge public outcry and the mainland Chinese family were accused by um, online commentators of not being, you know, not accepting Singaporean culture, which was an interesting idea that cooking curry or rather accepting that another family was going to engage in a different practice than what you're used to was not seen as being part of Singaporean culture. And then in response, uh, as a sign of solidarity, Singaporeans organised Cooker Curry Day and everybody then was supposed to, not everybody did of course, uh, was supposed to cook curry in solidarity. So it was seen as a sort of insider-outsider framing in response to this mainland Chinese family. It was also, I mean, this all comes with reflections obviously of xenophobia. I think when we when we kind of talk about Singapore as well, there's also a lot of challenges with uh, when you talk about the CMIO structure. There's a tension within the CMIO structure of, you know, for example, yes, we say Chinese, Malay, Indian, others, uh, but when you try and classify groups in terms of saying, you know, you are Chinese, within the group, there's a lot of diversity. There's diversity, obviously, of, for example, amongst the Chinese, you have a diversity of language. For example, in Singapore, while the state does require that every person who is being labelled, this is a state labelling process, as Chinese is required to learn Mandarin as a language of a uh, second language in school, in public schools. Traditionally, um, people of ethnic Chinese background uh, may not have actually spoken Mandarin because there's so many different dialects. And so there's a big discussion in Singapore, obviously, that alternative Chinese dialects uh, that are not Mandarin are effectively dying out. But also there's, apart from sort of subgroups based upon, say, linguistic differences, so you see this, for example, in the Indian population, of course, or the South Asian population. But you also have the challenge of insiders, um, so people who are considered sort of native Singaporeans versus sort of naturalised citizens. So there's also the language of, you know, who is here first. There's a big distinction drawn between lo the local Chinese population and, and newer citizens from, from China. So they might use terms like, for example, PRCs. So even if they might be by their legal status, might have converged to Singaporean citizenship and be formerly Singaporean citizens, they might still be treated as not sufficiently Singaporean for a range of different reasons. Part of it is classist, part of it is the fear of having mainland Chinese come in and take over jobs and so forth. So there, there's also a sort of xenophobic, people kind of differ on whether we want to label it xenophobia or not, but certainly that fear of migrants coming to Singapore, regardless of whether they change their legal status. So there's a desire to distance. So that's the challenge, I think, with the CMI framework that's been studied quite a bit. Sometimes the distinctions, the labelling of it, but also them being labelled with other people they don't right. think are the same right. as them. So that's, I think, the challenge. A governing structure that forces people into pigeonholes that they might not necessarily agree with. And then yeah. tries to sort of say that's the, that's the definition exactly. of diversity, right? Yeah. yeah. So there's a very fixed idea of what it is to be Singaporean. It is the CMIO structure. If you don't fit within it, then there are lots of questions, you know, are you truly Singaporean? So some of the people I interviewed, one of the interesting cases was somebody who was, was white. She was British and she lived in Singapore for many years. She became a Singaporean citizen, but she complained that basically she was never believed. Whenever she said, you know, I'm Singaporean, everybody looked at her and went, no, you can't be Singaporean. Because to be Singaporean is to look whatever it looks like, sort of phenotypically Asian, right? 
I mean, as if there were really an Asian phenotype <laughs> in, in such a huge continent. But you have to look East Asian or you have to look South Asian. Uh, but if you look Caucasian, you can't be Singaporean, uh, no matter how much you try and convince. And of course, your mixed race, then there's a different element of that as well. So with creating the CMIO framework, people don't fit, particularly the CMI, the Chinese, Malay, Indian structure, it's, it's not a meaningful category, right. obviously, even with its labelling. It's expected to be very, very elastic to kind of accommodate all the people that don't fit within the criteria, but it's reused in a variety of ways, represent nationalities. So sometimes others might be labelled as Javanese or Boyanese or Ceylonese. So they don't, they're not put under CMI, but in some ways they're so accepted as, say, the Indian population. So Sri Lankans, for example, sometimes labelled as, or seen as part of the South Asian population or the Indian population, when of course they, they aren't. So there's, there's that difficulty, I think, of any state trying to force people into particular ethnic groups for the purposes of, of public policy, um, things like housing policy or education policy. So I want to take us then to thinking about how there's, you're right, there's a muddiness, if yep. you will, to what it is to be Singaporean. Yep. And at the same time, the state is very much trying to promote mm-hmm. a notion of, you know, the good Singaporean mm-hmm. and, and what yep. it means to fit within this. And you mentioned it before that there's a this integration and naturalization champions, these INCs, who are volunteers effectively, although they get some perks apparently from being volunteers, but they're volunteers who are are kind of working hand in hand with the state, as I understand it, to to try to shape and mold good Singaporeans. Can you say a little bit more about the work that they're doing and the challenges they face? So INCs are called class of volunteers. They work with the state because they're basically volunteering uh, under the purview of a state organisation, because everything in Singapore is very, very centralised. So under what we call People's Association. So their job is really to do a couple of things. The first is fairly formal role where they help to organise and facilitate part of naturalisation process. So obviously part of this process occurs at sort of the immigration, uh, the more governmental level, so things like the Immigration Checkpoints Authority when you send your papers and things. But a lot of the process of becoming a nationalised citizen is sort of more of an educational process, more co- community-based process of, as I mentioned earlier, sort of uh, there are a few stages. Um, this is called the Singapore Citizenship Journey. So when you apply to become a citizen, and you send in your papers, you get provisional acceptance. And that provisional that provisional acceptance turning into sort of uh, guaranteed, get, actually getting citizenship, is dependent upon you doing what they call the Singapore citizenship journey. And part of this is very community-based. So you have to, for example, go on excursions to sites. You also have to learn about your particular neighbourhood, your own constituency in Singapore. So you have to go meet other new citizens and meet community leaders uh, within your neighbourhood. And so the integration naturalisation champions do a lot of that volunteer work. So they might, for example, take new citizens out on excursions. They will introduce them to the neighbourhood through various events. But they also do other activities that are beyond the formal citizenship process that are more broadly about integrating the neighbourhood. So they will do things like organise big cultural festivals. So for example, when you have Chinese New Year, which we had recently, but you also have other cultural festivals like Deepavali or Diwali, Raya for, for the Muslim community. Then they will have big cultural events uh, that they will help organise. And so it might have things like, for example, dances, it might have exhibitions, educating broader neighbourhoods. So it's not something that's, uh, they're not focused merely upon new citizens. They're focused obviously on anybody who lives in the neighbourhood. So they might be non-citizens, they might be people who've grown up in, in Singapore and are locally born, citizenship by birth. So it's more of a broad educational idea of creating sort of integrated society through things like education and exposure. 
But of course, they also, a lot of these volunteers do more than just these formal roles. They take a lot of informal responsibilities, so they take great deal of pride, for example, in forming relationships through having done this volunteer work. So when they meet people, for example, they meet new citizens through their volunteer work, they often will do things like exchange phone numbers, invite them over to their house, and so, and they might organize parties or get togethers on a more informal level, which goes beyond what the state has set out. And obviously beyond the purview of the state as well, because where the state kind of oversees how these volunteers communicate, for example, ideas of citizenship or Singaporeanness, nationalism more than just citizenship, through state-run processes, when you sort of form these informal relationships in, in the privacy of your home, um, then the state no longer is, is involved. And it doesn't necessarily mean they go against the state, but they're sort of going above and beyond what, what's set up for them. It becomes a lot more of an informal process of integration. And then hopefully the idea is that if you form relationships, at least in the eyes of some of these volunteers, then you'll feel more rooted to the nation because you don't have friends, you don't have people that you can see yourself a part of the community with. That's a big part of the integration process. Which is right. Very interesting because it's suggesting kind of the importance of a local attachment, right? And then in some of them make this point in, yeah. in your work that it's one thing to go to the kind of the national sites, yeah. but it's another to become locally attached. Yeah. And the relationship between being locally attached yeah. and then feeling Singaporean, yeah. right? Which they really emphasize a lot. Yeah. I found it very interesting that you talk about how because the citizenship process comes quite late and is in some ways also quite class-based, yeah. right? So you have to be generally a white-collar worker, you have to be in a certain visa class to begin with yeah. about 10 years before you can apply for citizenship. So some of the INCs themselves say, this is far too late for us to be integrating people, yeah. right? Let's, let's do it earlier. And while they might still focus on those who would ultimately be eligible or more likely to stay for a long period of time, they see this process and they kind of take it in their own hands yeah. to, to try to get people not to hang laundry on yeah. jungle gym or sort of yeah. like, you know, kids playground bars yeah. and, and do the things that sort of make you, like you said, make you a good neighbor, yeah. right? And I thought that that was a very interesting yeah. role that they take on. Yeah. Um, and that it struck me that they may also be somewhat more legitimate in that role because they're also the INC, right? So there's a way, a way in which there's a feedback that they may be extending what the state had initially intended, but also their ability to do so. Is it fair to say that it's partly because, or it might be partly because, they have this formal role with the INC to begin with? Yeah. The way I've often seen role of INCs is that they sort of straddle. The difference between, for example, them and a sort of state bureaucrat, or just an everyday citizen that's not involved in their state work, is that as a grassroots volunteer, they straddle this liminal position between both state and the local community. So they have, on one hand, they're communicating state ideas, but because they are volunteers, they're not tied, for example, to the state paying their salaries. They're doing this because they, at least on paper, believe in the ideals. Uh, but they also see it as part of giving back to the community. So they're doing it for a range of different purposes. And a lot of it's tied to their own sense of, of being a citizen. They see it as a citizenship duty, as being themselves, uh, as volunteering itself, being a form of being a good citizen giving back, making Singapore the kind of society that you would want to live in. In a lot of societies, it's a way of sort of thinking about shaping your own community the way the, into the community you'd like to live in. So they have that, but they also, of course, have the authority of, of, of the state in some ways as being a community leader, right? So I would say, you know, I am a neighbourhood leader, the chairperson of my neighbourhood committee, or I'm part of the INC. So I have access and knowledge to what the state's policies are. I have a certain kind of local community authority. 
And so it, it then changes the dynamic, of course, because I can, for example, give you access to resources, I can give you advice that maybe the everyday citizen that you might interact with in your neighborhood would not necessarily have access to. And so there, for example, uh, were accounts of, of, you know, you form friendships uh, with new citizens and new citizens, for example, might need help, yeah. like, for example, access to public welfare systems or they, you know, they might want to get their kids into a local school. And then because you say, you know, I have, I, I am part of the local neighbor committee, some sort of grassroots level governance structure, I can put you in touch with you know, somebody else I know. And then if all of those networks start forming. And so there is that liminal position where they get more, they get more legitimacy because they are members of the community, right? I am also living in the same housing estate as you. So there's not the same sort of elitist or distant relationship you might have with a bureaucrat who kind of tells you this is what, yeah, this is how you should live. And sort of government posters saying, please do not litter, or please you know, engage in these sorts of norms. That sort of distant government messaging that people can often disregard or more likely to disregard. But then they still have the authority of being sort of part of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of, it's a, it's a very fluid process that they kind of straddle and they, they put on different hats depending on what they're trying to negotiate. Exactly. I was about to say that in some ways what we can think of it is they have, they have various bases yes. of authority yeah. right, that they're bringing to, yeah. to the role and that, yeah. and that then in some ways kind of in this case mutually reinforce each other. Yeah. Right? That's the yeah. But then there's also attention of course and sometimes they then find themselves, you know, if for example, I think, I think you mentioned earlier, these cases where they disagree with government policy so, for example, they say, you know, a lot of why are we focusing, for example, on integration, on naturalization processes, on individuals who are going to become naturalized citizens? Because the people who are going to become naturalized citizens have already, in that sense, lived in Singapore for a long time. The fact that they're becoming naturalized citizens often is a sign already that they've kind of embraced the norm. Right? They want to become <laughs> Singaporean. Yeah. Um, the concern, or the, I mean, inverted commas, of problem areas that need more integration, the communities that are more segregated from Singaporean society are the ones that perhaps need the most integration and yet government efforts are not as focused on that or we as for example INCs are not being told to direct efforts towards for example the individuals for example who will never get citizenship so if you look at certain communities for Singapore if you're say on the work permit the employment pass so like domestic workers construction workers they are, are effectively uh, will never be able to access citizenship and yet, in some ways, they are often segregated in large part from Singaporean society. And so some of the INCs say, look, they need to be integrated. They're the, perhaps the most segregated. But our government funding, our directive from uh, the state says that we should not be focusing on this group. We should be focusing on people who are going to become citizens, who have already indicated that they can, and obviously are able to even apply in the first place. So they, they see that they, they then disagree with state policy. It's interesting that they kind of are torn because they see it as you know, the government policy is not really doing it enough. So sometimes they will go above and beyond, but this will obviously depend on things like resources, how much okay. they can do that. So some of them would say, you know, I see this as an extension of my duty, so I will do it beyond, you know, make friends with people who will never, I would not otherwise be able to reach in a sort of official capacity, but I still see it as carrying out the same role, just not for the purposes of citizenship, because natural integration is not something that should occur, regardless of whether you're going to get citizenship or not sort of reshaping policy. Uh, it's not a huge process, but it certainly is occurring obviously in a, on a one-on-one basis. And in some ways, again, it shows the importance of their living locally, yeah. right? Yeah. That what they really want to do is improve yeah. the local experience. Yeah. Um, and this is how they can do it.
Thank you again. This is fascinating work. Really, yes. really interesting. And, and I learned a lot in leading it. It also just really sparks a lot of ideas about how we think about the roles of, of citizens, but also the attempts at, at yeah. shaping them. So yeah. thank you so much for, for joining. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Our final guest for today is Nick Kuypers, who is an assistant professor of political science at the National University of Singapore. Together with Nick, we will delve into the topic of civil service exams and their impact on representation in municipalities, as well as individuals' attitudes towards them. Nick has conducted a study on applicants to the Indonesian civil service to understand how high-stakes exams can affect their political attitudes, comparing the attitudes of applicants who just barely pass the exam with those who just barely fail. Keep listening to hear Nick talk about how these findings can have unintended consequences for social cohesion. Nick, thank you for joining us today. We're going to talk about civil service exams and their impact on representation in municipalities, as well as thinking about how they influence or might influence individuals' attitudes towards the state. So let's start just by laying out what a civil service exam is. Great. So civil service exams were historically introduced for the first time in the UK in the mid-19th century. And they were seen as an improvement over previous systems of bureaucratic selection in which civil servants were selected through, say, patronage or aristocratic mechanisms. And the idea is that they would improve the quality of civil servant by gauging applicants' preparedness on a host of uh, different criteria, right? And so these civil service exams contain questions gauging applicants' preparedness for the specific tasks, the job to which they're applying, but also in terms of, say, general knowledge. Oftentimes, civil service exams will contain arithmetic questions, logic questions, so on and so forth. And then the consequences partly to increase or improve the quality of civil servants in the bureaucracy, but there was also expectations that it would have broader consequences in terms of representation of different groups within society in the bureaucracy. That's right. So these exams are designed to screen candidates on preparedness for these jobs. But these jobs are highly desirable. They are often tenured for life and they pay very well. And so they're quite high stakes and so people spend a lot of time preparing for them. And in lots of countries you see expensive tutoring services that crop up in which people take time off work to prepare for these exams. And so one of the consequences of this arrangement is that individuals who come from a priori privileged groups tend to have greater access to resources to pay for these preparatory services, as well as historically having better access to, say, early childhood education that makes them better positioned to do well in these exams. And so at the margins, what you see is that the introduction of civil service exams is thought to sort of improve the representation of privileged groups to the detriment of underprivileged groups. And so you look at this with regards to progressive era U.S., Right. And you're finding a little bit different in terms of the impact of these exams on representation and you link it to city sides. Right. So I think that's particularly interesting for people interested in local governance and thinking about what size of cities might mean. Can you say a little bit more about that? That's right. And so the, the sort of standard narrative about the sort of progressive era reform movement when it comes to civil service reform is that the impetus for these reforms was that a recent wave of immigrants in cities in the U.S. had, through patronage, developed a sort of stranglehold on local public administration. And white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, uh, who are typically wealthier, were seeing their share and representation in public administration decline. And so the standard narrative is that these WASPs used 
civil service exams and these reforms under the sort of banner of good governance to try and dislodge immigrants from power. And so in this paper with my co-author Alexander San, we look at how representation for recent immigrants changed following these reforms. And instead of looking at a few cities, New York, Chicago, Cleveland, we look at the full sample of U.S. cities. And what we find is that on average, following these reforms, in fact, representation for recent immigrants, particularly white immigrants, actually improved following these reforms. And one of the things we do in trying to explore why our sort of surprising results obtain is to look at the effect size based on the different sizes of cities, right? And what we find is that in the largest cities, consistent with the standard narrative, you see that there is, in fact, a decline in representation for recent immigrants. But in a much larger number of cities that include small cities, so Toledo, Ohio, I can't think of any other cities because they're small, <laughs> um, you actually see the representation of recent immigrants actually improve following the introduction of civil service exams. And that was particularly for Irish Americans, I remember correctly. That's right. So we find an average positive effect for all recent white immigrants, but the effect is concentrated among Irish Americans, which we think is actually particularly surprising given that there's this sort of large history around, you know, Irish need not apply for these jobs. And there's this view that Irish were discriminated against. And, and perhaps that's true. But what we're finding is that the meritocratic recruitment of civil servants perhaps pushed away those, those barriers to entry. And in this case, the advantage that the Irish Americans had or the Irish immigrants had was that they were, English had been their language, the more literate. So in that sense, it's still within the notion of kind of the more privileged, as I was reading it. So among the immigrants, those who are able to succeed are the ones who had a kind of a leg up, right? They weren't the Germans who came in and were trying to learn English. They had that advantage among the immigrant population. Is that a fair way to think of it? You know, I think it is. I, I don't think we've thought about it in those terms, right, as possessing English literacy as, a, as an advantage, but it certainly is, right? And I think that's the primary mechanism that we propose through which the Irish were able to do better than, say, the Germans or the Polish or the Russians, right? right. Um, and the other groups that yeah. are out there. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a good interpretation. But I think that, again, you know, you go back to thinking, too, a little bit in the paper about the capture that pre-progressive era reform capture that different groups had, right? And that the ideas that these minority groups and these immigrants had capture in the large cities, but they didn't have capture in the smaller towns. And I think that's a key element of your argument, right? That it's partly about who's getting dislodged, and then it's partly about what is the capacity of those who are potentially dislodging. That's right. So I think we, and this is perhaps more speculative than other aspects of the paper, but I think our preferred interpretation of the results is to place these findings in historical perspective, right? And to say, well, in New York City, in Chicago, there were large populations of recent immigrants, and they were able to forge these coalitions that could capture local public administration because 40, 50, 60% of the vote share is enough to swing an election. But fewer immigrants settled in places like Manchester, New Hampshire, or Toledo, Ohio, for instance. And in these places, recent immigrants weren't able to forge these dominant coalitions, right? And in those places under patronage, they were in fact discriminated against, right? Rather than using the sort of capture that you saw in New York City or Chicago to get access to government jobs. And so when civil service reform reached these smaller cities, we argue that it sort of removed these barriers to entry, right? And they were able to, to access government jobs uh, more effectively. And you obviously don't look at the, the individual impacts of, of these reforms on individuals' attitudes in the progressive era, because these people aren't around to be asking what they, what they think. But you do, when you're looking at a paper on Indonesia, 
where you think about what's the what's the effect of having taken the exam and either succeeded or failed on your attitude towards the state. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's right. So this paper takes as its premise what I reject in the previous paper, right, which is that civil service exams create an unequal distribution of, of who gets a government job, right? And this idea that uh, minorities are going to, say, lose out on government jobs under civil service exams. And one of the things that I hypothesized in this other paper in Indonesia is that against that backdrop, the experience of failing a civil service exam might motivate attitudinal changes on, on say, political resentment. With a civil service exam, you're being evaluated and judged to possess insufficient merit. And if you know that outgroups are disproportionately successful, it might be that the experience of failure is then making you more resentful, right? And so partnering with the Indonesian Civil Service Agency, we conducted a survey of all 3.6 million applicants to the Indonesian Civil Service in 2019, and then followed up with a questionnaire asking them a range of questions, including regarding national solidarity, political resentment, outgroup resentment, and so on. And then I'm able to sort of compare these attitudes across winners and losers. And what I find is that Individuals who failed the civil service exam are, in fact, more resentful of outgroups, uh, and they report lower levels of national identification. Right? And so this, I think, depending on your perspective, is, is perhaps a normatively concerning result. One of the questions I had for you, again, trying to put that first paper to, together with the second and thinking about who is advantaged or disadvantaged at the time of the, of the exam, right? And in a sense of how identifiable might they be? If it's the case that you have clearly identified groups that are less likely to succeed than others, then you can see how this mechanism of resentment, particularly if you're part of those groups, it can be increased, which is a different kind of situation than if it's much more difficult to identify distinctions between the groups who are succeeding and, and failing. Yeah, that's right. And one of the things that's unique about the Indonesian method of civil service exams is that it makes the process of identifying who's failing and who's succeeding very, very clear. And so the contextual background is that this civil service exam is computerized in Indonesia and it was rolled out in 2018. Prior to that, there was widespread sort of clientelism and patronage in the distribution of government jobs. And they rolled out this system of computerized civil service exams and it's been quite effective, but people still complained of, uh, you know, they didn't know if the scores were being manipulated after the fact. And so the solution that they rolled out in many provinces, although not everywhere, is to basically have a scoreboard of individuals' names. And as they're answering these questions on the computer, the scoreboard is updating their scores and you can see their relative rankings, right? And so if you look at these names, you can, of course, infer ethnicity, religion, so on and so forth, right? And you can see who's succeeding and who's failing um, based on this scoreboard, right? So it's quite gladiatorial and, and public. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's uh, remarkable, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It but really it's, it's really been, I think, quite effective in rooting out foul play. But you have to ask yourself, you know, at what cost is it coming, right? Because right. the, the sort of humiliation of failure is perhaps multiplied because it's so public. So just thinking for a moment about what are the implications for people who are interested in more meritocratic government and bureaucracies or interested in implementing these kinds of, of exams, can you share a little bit of your thoughts on what this means from a policy perspective? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one I, you know, I've thought about before and I don't have a, a great answer to. You know, I think one of the findings that has been confirmed over and over again is that when civil servants are recruited meritocratically, you get better measures of service delivery. And I think that's unambiguously true, right? At least as compared to, say, recruitment under patronage. 
Now, I think at the same time, it's important to recognize that there are these downsides, right? It's not a normative absolute. And I think governments and civil service agencies could do more to, say, manage the resentment that comes from meritocratic selection that I identify in the Indonesia paper. And so one of the things that I think is an engine of the findings is that individuals will apply to jobs in regions where they believe themselves to be more competitive for a job. And this, I think, motivates a lot of resentment because people say, oh, I failed, but I failed because some outsider got my job. And so I think you can imagine sort of minor policy tweaks regarding, say, residency requirements. You have to have resided in this district for at least five years before applying to a job in this place. And I think this could go some way towards managing this level of resentment that at scale could be really threatening social cohesion, right? So in Indonesia, there are stories of aggrieved civil servants burning down local branches of the civil service agency, right? It does lead to genuine conflict. And so I think managing that with these perhaps light touch policy interventions could could go some way. Is it also feasible to think about policies that might help to level the playing field? I mean, in some ways, by the time a person is a young adult or an adult and, and applying for these jobs, it might be a little bit late. But starting out by saying, okay, there's times when people take time off from work to be able to study and prepare. Are there ways in which those who are interested in implementing these reforms could also provide a more equal opportunity to take that time off or to be able to have tutorials or to have other sets of support? Yeah. You know, starting from a young age, of course, there should be, I think, more equal access to education and high quality education across different groups. I haven't seen any examples in any context of, say, governments offering vouchers for aspirants to civil service to take on 80 hours of tutoring services or whatever. And even if you offer the voucher, then the question becomes, well, do they have the time yeah. to take off from work? Yeah. And some rich kid from Jakarta yeah. can take off time because yeah. he can afford it and he's got the savings. But a poor kid out in, say, Maluku in the eastern region of Indonesia, you know, he has to be working all day to, to make ends meet. So he probably can't take off that 80 right. hours. And so I think the actual nitty gritty of that policy implementation would be quite Quite difficult. Difficult. Yeah. And I think one solution that you've seen across the world that I don't address in any of my work, which I think is contentious but quite interesting, is, is forms of affirmative action. Do you offer an after-the-fact point bonus to individuals from marginalized groups? Do you create quotas? And you know, what are the implications of these policies in terms of quality of service delivery, in terms of the resentment that I identify in the Indonesia paper? I mean, these are still open questions that I'd like to answer in, in future work. Excellent. Yeah. And first of all, congratulations. You do wonderful work. It's, it's exciting. And I think it's, it's important because it not only addresses and, and turns our attention to things like civil service exams and meritocratic, bureaucratic assignment, but it also really gets at these deeper questions about inequalities and how we understand the relationship between inequalities, attempts to address them, and then what might be perverse effects in some context, right? And really getting us to think through those well. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. No, thank you. That was all for today. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you liked this episode. If you have thoughts on what you would like to hear next, or maybe guest our podcast, feel free to drop us a note on any of our socials or at contact at gld.gu.se. We'd love to hear from you. 